the DIY Metropolis, Anarchist Models of the City. Quote, It may be romantic to search for the selves of society's ills in slow-moving rustic surroundings or among innocent, unspoiled provincials, but it is a waste of time. Does anyone suppose that in real life answers to any of the great questions that worry us today are going to come out of homogenous settlements? Unquote. Jane Jacobs Many anarchists, along with at least half the world's population, live in cities. Realistically, many anarchists organize in cities, work in cities, make love in cities, and love our cities. Yet there is little real analysis of what an anti-authoritarian city would be like, if such a thing is even possible, and how it might function. Many anarchists believe that cities are inherently hierarchical, and thus must be completely done away with. Yet they give little thought to how relocating billions of people could be accomplished without coercive hierarchies, or what impact this massive exodus would have on the rural countryside. Others, like Murray Bookchin and his municipalitarian devotees, sorry, believe that hamlets modeled in them on the medieval town, or worse, a model based on the slaveholding ancient Greek cities, would provide the optimum anarchist habitat. This concept of small communities has been revisited numerous times throughout the history of anarchist thought. These partisans of small-town models wish to control the size and character of the city, to create a dollhouse urban space with discrete sectors and compartmentalized positions. Similar ideas have already been put into practice by Ebenezer Howard in England's garden cities, or more recently with the new, urban, the new urbanism model. They have typically resulted in sterile, segregated, homogeneous, pseudo-urban environments, such as Celebration, Florida, and Kentlands, Maryland. While criti- critics of the pastoralists, municipalitarians, primi- primitivists, Flor- Fiorists and others are, also, are often correct in their particulars. They miss the point of why over half the world's population is attracted to urban spaces. They miss the dynamic life of the city and the chaotic nature of urban existence that creates not only problems but also new forms of experiences. They overlook the possibility, the excitement, the f- the, and the freedom of living in the city. Even if some anarchists I have written off the city. Half of the world has not. In the last two centuries, discussion about the future of cities has been dominated by specialists who implicitly hated cities. A number of urban and political theorists from all over the political spectrum have re-envisioned the city by neutralizing it. Le Corbusier's vision of a clean, disease-free, perfectly regulated urban environment Lenin's dream of an industrial cooperative metropolis where workers would live communally next to their work in a drab and functional style, and Hitler and Albert Speer's plan for Berlin as an ethnically cleansed, perfectly obedient capital are not the same thing, but the distinctions are not as vast as one might think. Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, the planner of Washington, D.C., said that the design of a capital with such regular plans might look good on paper, but on the ground they become, quote, tiresome and insipid. Even 19th century anarchist reformers like Charles Fourier were control addicts, 
even if they had some fun fantasies. Utopian city planning has, ima- has imagined itself to be a sublime engine of social change. By changing the physical conditions of an imperfect thing, a city, they can make perfect people. Their paper theories have turned into some of the greatest cities, have turned some of the greatest cities in the world into concrete nightmares. They refuse to address this problem of power because no one, no one can plan or design single-handedly without accepting a position of power. Hierarchical authority and architectural authority are one and the same, and should repulse any city-loving anarchist and anarchy-loving urbanites alike. There has been precious little written by anarchists about alternatives to the hierarchy of cities. There are a few books and decent articles written on North American and European squatters, but they are insufficient. We believe that there are more anarchist urban models, innovative and tested, that exist already in unlikely places. These are the shanties on the fringes of our largest and most dynamic urban centers. The city is already being remade in non-hierarchical ways not by legions of urban planners or political theorists, or even by handfuls of squatters, but by millions of everyday men and women of the global south. Catalyzed by necessity and desire, a do-it-yourself ethic has grown up up in the world's largest and most impoverished metropolitan centers. The residents of these shantytown, favelas, or borgi, as they are variously called, are among the world's fastest-growing populations. A UN Global Report on Human Settlements in 1986 pointed out that between a third to more than half of the residents of most large cities and developing countries live in these type of informal settlements. We have much to learn from these organically organized models of urban living that already exist. While it is true that the estimated one billion folks living in informal settlements are besieged by a number of life-threatening problems such as poor sanitation, lack of health care, inadequate access to basic resources, and poor nutrition. Most of these problems are due to the crushing poverty that is inflicted on them by the neoliberal policies of the, quote, developed world. Despite these nearly insurmountable economic and political obstacles, more and more people voluntarily choose to rebuild the world's cities. What is even more impressive is that they are using many of the principles that anarchists espouse, including voluntary association, decentralization, sustainability, direct democracy, mutual aid, gift exchange, and the do-it-yourself ethic. They have done this while embracing an organic and chaotic development that in many places has led to effective political activism and active resistance against the powers of the state and capitalism. Our information comes from a variety of sources, including NGO reports, anthropologists, urban planners, political activists, our own visits to these places, and most importantly, the people living in shanties themselves. The myth that shanties are teeming, dangerous, and depraved places where people live no better than overcrowded and caged animals simply does not hold up to the experiences of the researchers and the people living in these places. Let's still deep into the alleys of the favelas and enter their DIY homes. Let's see another way to envision the city when it looks like anarchy. Voluntary Association The most enduring myth of the shantytown is that its inhabitants are forced to live there due to economic need. While it is true that families move to shantytowns in the hope of improving their economic status, 
many, this is not the only reason, or even the primary reason. Anthropologists in Lima's major borgatas found that people choose to live in shanty towns because they were bored with their small rural villages and sought an escape from the culturally and socially limiting traditions of highland life. A similar sentiment, sentiment was echoed among shanty dwellers in Ghana, who claimed that there were more opportunities to escape the arranged marriages, poor education, and limited career choices of the hinterlands. The Roma, gypsies, in Bulgaria moved from rural areas to shanty towns in the major cities to avoid the often provincial, violent provincial prejudices of their rural neighbors. Or as one squatter in a shanty town outside Hong Kong said, quote, there is more liberty in the city. I can be myself, unquote. People are not flocking to the city solely for economic reasons. There's actually freedom living in the city, the possibility for individuals to reinvent themselves. In large cities, there is often a cultural tolerance that does not exist in small towns, rural areas, or suburbs, for that matter. Some come together in cities in large enough groups to provide security. Others flock to the density of the city for economic or educational opportunities. Assuming that shanty dwellers are simply passive victims of economic pressures would be an oversimplification and, in most cases, just wrong. Shanty dwellers are often active agents in choosing to leave the rural hinterlands for a variety of reasons and coming together in informal settlements to create a better world. Their reasons for leaving, for leaving are not much different than those of anarchists in the United States today who are fleeing the deadening suburbs and small towns of their youth to congregate in squats or cheap apartments in the poor and forgotten neighborhoods of our larger cities. Decentralization there are many aspects of decentralization in informal settlements. Basic urban infrastructure and services are decentralized, undoubtedly due to shanties being excluded from centralized services, but for other reasons as well. Limited resources, smallness of scale, self-organization, and a desire for direct precipitation and control are among the reasons shanty communities embrace decentralization. Despite their lack of resources, many of these decentralized services prove more effective than centralized models. For example, the use of communal minivans and shanties in southern Istanbul are very popular. The vans run more regularly and are safer than their centralized commercial counterparts. Decentralized wells in the shanty ghettos of Bolivia have proven so successful at providing water for inhabitants that the high and mighty United Nations planners have decided to research this model for replication in other poor regions. Even education and childcare are often decentralized. In Lima, decentralized education is proved, is proved provided by, quote, roaming teachers who move from one tiny neighborhood school to another, sometimes up to four schools in a single day. These teachers build relationships with various schools and agree on compensation for their services. It isn't common, it isn't uncommon, for a small neighborhood school to get four or five teachers with substantial college education and experience who roam, who roam in and out of the course of a single school day. Without this arrangement, it would be impossible for a single tiny school to hire permanent staff of each caliber of such caliber. 
Child care in North Shantytowns, where most where many mothers work, is also decentralized. People, men, women, older siblings, and elderly and differently abled, not at work, will take on the task of caring for the children of working parents. This allows children to have a much larger social network than in a traditional Western-style daycare. A researcher for a cooperative housing foundation found that children in a shanty outside of Pagoda created lasting bonds with as many as 25 different adults outside their families in a week through rotating informal daycare. Sustainability When policy wonks, United Nations representatives on urban issues or other specialists talk about population and city growth, they usually defer to the horrors of ever-growing shantytowns in, quote, developing countries. These so-called experts have succeeded in creating the image of the informal settlement as an uns- unstable, exploding hellhole, perpetually on the brink of self-destruction. While life in these settlements is full of hardships, the idea that they are all unstable, untenable, and ready to burst is simply not true. There are settlements that have appeared overnight, and there are settlements that are transitory. But this is certainly not the case for all settlements. Informal settlements, such as the ones in Rio de Janeiro or Mexico City, are becoming less and less transitory. Many have been around for a long time, for centuries, in Brazil, and they have endured spite poverty, population growth, and government repression. The nature of informal settlements around the world has been changing from temporary and traditional to permanent and sustainable. Despite the fact that most, despite the fact most shanties are located in poor sites, ill-suited for human living, in landfills, dumps, ero- erosion zones, flood zones, and toxic waste areas, they have endured. They have still endured. Moreover, in many places, their inhabitants have significantly improved the environment while creating a more livable community for themselves. In Turkey, the residents of shanties have actually protected the surrounding countryside from erosion by planting and tending communal olive trees. These trees, with their extensive root systems, have been more more useful than the concrete jerseys used by the city government. In two of the largest and most politically active shanties in Mexico City, shanty dwellers developed, along with students from nearby universities, an innovative way to protect the diminishing greenbelt around Mexico City. The Ecologica Productiva movement argued that by utilizing the decentralized and creative aspects of the shanties, Mexico City's endangered greenbelt could be transformed into a thriving and diverse biological preserve while providing economic opportunities for the local inhabitants. The plan emphasized sustainable technology, like solar-powered outhouses that convert organic waste into highly desirable fertilizer, and communal management of natural resources. Not surprisingly, the Mexican authorities scuttled the plan. Regardless of their unpopularity with the government, these ideas are now appearing in other countries in Latin America and Africa with great initial success. In general, informal settlements have no redundant buildings, no excesses in living space or style, and total recycling is a way of survival. Recent research in Mexico City and Hong Kong showed that the average shanty resident produces half of 1% of the waste of an average city dweller does.
In addition, most large cities in the developing world have no formalized recycling program, and thus shanty residents play an important role in recycling and reducing the annual waste of these metropolises. Since both public spaces and residences are multi-use, nothing remains fallow. Even though shanties are incredibly dense, they often have more public space than some urban neighborhoods in the, quote, developed world. They have shown how ordinary folks have reclaimed public space at the same time as making new areas that can be used for both private and public events. Direct Democracy Shanty residents are always politically marginalized and are commonly victims of repression by the state. Voting is low in shanties, but residents make up for it in creative grassroots actions. Shanties have been laboratories for spatial and social organizing and political experimentation. The most successful shanties share a commitment to direct democracy in its various forms. These successes range from building more schools to stealing access to state-owned utilities. For direct democracy to work in a shanty, the residents need access to information about the political scene. Shanty residents are innovative in dealing with this need. For example, despite the high illiteracy rates, nearly every Mexican shanty town has at least one do-it-yourself newsletter, which is read aloud in public spaces. A shanty outside Mundo puts out a regular comic book illustrating the current political situation in their communities in the country. Shanty communities have utilized diverse tactics to achieve their political goals. The Ecologica Productiva movement of Mexico City used large marches, coalitions, and university student, with university students, environmentalists, and international nonprofits to put pressure on the government for greater autonomy and the rights to their homes. Informal settlements outside Hong Kong used high-profile occupations of government buildings in order to secure access to basic utilities. The residents of Akatmundu Shanti collected and dumped all of their garbage in the central marketplace, thus forcing the government to resume waste removal in their communities. All of these actions were accomplished without formal representational organizations being involved. In Mexico City, the attempt at forming an organization actually led to the downfall of the Ecologica Productiva movement and resulted in the destruction of the participating informal settlements. What happened in Mexico City has been repl replicated in U.S. communities. When we try to become, quote, legal, whether it is getting deeds for our squats or permits for our marches, we run the risk of making the same fatal mistake as the Mexico City squatters. Mutual Aid and Gift Exchange One of the most obvious aspects of shanties is their crushing poverty. Shanties have few internal resources, and their access to the city's wealth is tenuous and exploitative at best. Exploitative at best. This has led creative shanty residents to develop and implement a number of alternative economic models to ensure their survival. Obviously, theft, parasitism, informal economies can be found in nearly every shanty town and poor inner city neighborhood, but these are not the primary ways they obtain needed resources. Mutual aid is an important aspect of successful 
a successful every shantytown, of every sex successful in shantytown, and distinguishes them from bleak inner-city neighborhoods, from building shelters, sharing tools, and working on communal gardens, to providing each other rides with, from, to and from work. Needs are met using mutual aid. Gift-giving is also important. One anthropologist who spent five years living in a settlement in Ghana estimated that almost one-third of all resources were given away. Gift-giving is an important way to reinforce friendships and build new social networks. It also provides a safety net for those unable to work. Rotating credit and debt are also, are also another common feature of shanty towns. Interest-free debt is a way for shanty towns shanty inhabitants to weather the inherent instability in their employment. Obtaining large amounts of capital is often done informally through a lottery system. Families and individuals put mon money into a common kitty that is given to one participant each month. This allows that person to have enough resources to make a major purchase such as building supplies or start a business. Accumulation of wealth is not prized in a shanty nor is practical ownership occurs by any by use or occupancy. It is safer to give your resources away and widen your social net than to hoard resources. Anarchists can take a lesson from this generosity in our conferences, demonstrations, and gatherings. Social and Spatial Organization Quote, The street is the river of life. Unquote. In informal settlements, the organization and creation of space, the way houses are arranged and linked together, the width and direction of streets, and the formation of public spaces stems directly from the way residents are organized socially. This organization is based on affinity. Affinity can be fostered by a variety of forces, such as geography, fam familial ties and alliances, friendships, and professional bonds, as well as political and cultural associations. Affinity fosters an emphasis on the neighborhood as a whole. In contrast to the traditional western city dweller, significant time and resources are spent sustaining and increasing social ties. In Ghana shanties, most of the family's annual economic resources are spent on communal activities like feast days, weddings, parties, and baptisms. In Lima, men spend half the day in large groups socializing, while women spend even more of the day hanging out in such groups. Children in almost all informal settlements spend most of their waking hours in large mixed groups of adults and children. Socializing is key to physical, political, and economic survival inside shanty communities. Due to the widespread prejudice against residents in shanty towns, and their need to enter hostile areas for employment. They need the extended network to provide them against, to protect them against attacks from outsiders. They also need cohesive social networks to protect themselves physically from regularly occurring assaults in the shanty districts by police, army, paramilitary, and other governmental agencies. Social networks provide the, the glue that holds temporary coalitions of squatters together to launch large-scale political campaigns and make them resistant to both co-option and divisive tactics by authorities. These alliances are also effective in controlling disruptive forces inside the settlement. The use of gossip, shunning, and other social controls limits disruptive behavior 
and Tylenet neighborhoods. Individuals are dependent on a complex and extensive web of economic relationships. These webs are expanded and reinforced by friendships and other forms of togetherness. For example, it would be impossible for individual families to obtain the materials and supply all the labor needed to build adequate shelter without the aid of these social networks. Even education, health care, and basic utilities are dependent on informal social relationships. The constant need for socialization influences the way spaces are used. Informal settlements emphasize public spaces, often by redefining them. Boundaries between the public and private, so beloved by urbanists, are blurred and sometimes non-existent in these communities. Most spaces accommodate a variety of uses. A, a tree, a street, can be the place for a soccer game, vending, hanging out, showing off, and a transportation car all at the same time. A private home is not just a living space, but also a retail shop, daycare center, and community gathering place. Furthermore, space within a house is not specialized the way Western living space is. In the course of a single day, a single room may be used as a bedroom, a sitting room, a dining room, a children's room, and a place of work, sometimes all at once. All of this reinforces the power of socialization in these types of communities. The same principles of socialization can be applied to our infra shops, autonomous zones, and convergences. We must be willing to take the time and make the space for meaningful socialization. Do-it-yourself architecture. The do-it-yourself ethic is more than a strategic way to use limited resources. It also has a number of important advantages over commercial and professional enterprises. Do-it-yourself creates greater participation in the consumer relationship of professional encounters. It also allows individuals to customize their projects to their desires and skills, putting a premium on skill sharing as opposed to the skill hoarding so prevalent among experts. Shared work outside the traditional capitalist community, the traditional capitalist model, creates meaningful relationships among participants. Communal projects like barn raising have traditionally been very important in maintaining strong social ties inside a community. The do-it-yourself ethic puts a premium on indigenous skills, resources, and participants. Perhaps most importantly, it empowers individuals and creates a genuine shared investment in the community. These projects flourish in every shanty community ranging from complicated sanitation systems to simple soccer fields. The most common project is architecture, building homes and other structures. In the capitalist world, the domination of architects, building inspectors, engineers, and other experts is so complete that we can hardly imagine people constructing their own homes. The experts today have managed to obscure the fact that until the last century, most houses were do-it-yourself. If anything, with new technologies and resources, it should be easier to build sustainable do-it-yourself housing. And it is. The shanties are proving it. Do-it-yourself shanty architecture is organic in nature. It respects the natural characteristics of the terrain. This organic character is reflected in the way the site is treated. There are usually no big excavations, earth moving, creating or destroying of hills and valleys. In most shanty buildings, 
form follows function, independent of the resources available. Yet, informal structures have neither the alienating monotony nor the dehumanizing scale of modernist in architecture. Even the poorest DIY structures are not entirely devoid of ornaments or decoration. They reflect not only their resources, but the character and taste of those who inhabit them. Contrary to what one might expect, informal architecture doesn't mean crude architecture. Most shanty structures are built with solid permanent materials like brick, concrete, and stucco, following traditional construction techniques and decoration designs, decoration styles. Recycling of building materials is customary, and so is sharing of materials, tools, and skills. Most shanty homes are never, quote, finished. The building form is flexible. Rooms are constantly being added as needed. Building one's home is a work in progress, a never-ending project. The use of informal structures is usually based on need. Informal settlements inhabitants, settlement inhabitants quote, own a structure when they occupy it, and when they put work and effort into improving it, similar to Western-style squats. In most shanty towns, there are no empty or unused houses. When a family member moves out of a structure, another one moves in. Quote, the city air makes you free. Unquote. A medieval saying. We're not arguing that shanty communities are perfect, or even that all shanties exhibit all the above anarchistic qualities. Instead, we feel that shanty communities provide real-life and death models of how we can remake and reclaim the city. We can do this without giving up our anarchist ideals. The shanties are an enormous ongoing social experiment. They are a test of the effectiveness of voluntary association, decentralization, sustainability, direct democracy, mutual aid, and the do-it-yourself ethic in the most difficult urban environments. If they can do it, so can we. Let's acknowledge and celebrate the attraction cities have on our imagination and our desire for liberty and community. Unlike our predecessors, the last thing we want is to control and regulate the city, starving it of its organic nature and stripping it of its spontaneity. We want the city to be out of control. We're not creating the paper cities of theorists, but invoking what millions of others have already done. We are suggesting an informal approach to cities and settlements, stripping away the need for highly specialized professionals and replacing them with a community of shared skills. We replace developers, landlords, and land speculators with creative builders and home occupants based not on investment, ownership, or capital, but simply on occupancy. We wish to, be f- we wish to free the city, to shape itself based on the needs of its inhabitants and on a sustainable relationship with the surrounding ecosystem. We need cities that are alive and evolving, not a pre-planned nightmare of grids, cloverleaves, and dismal subdivisions. We reject the atomization, atomization of the suburb apartment complex and rural shack and embrace teeming complex anarchist communities. We have to be confident enough to, in ourselves and our neighbors to allow chaos to return to the cities, bringing new problems to be solved and creating new experiences not available anywhere other than the living city. No city will be safe from anarchy.